Hey guys, um, normally we don't have to do this, but um, after recording this episode, we realized that somehow, despite all expectations, this is probably the most thematically dark episode of Burden with Glory's podcast that we've done so far. So going into this, um, I just want to give you guys a heads up that there are very frank discussions in this of, off the top of my head, um, 9-11, suicide, the Chernobyl disaster, um, the Holocaust, the Holocaust being exploited in popular culture, um, how to identify fascism, and is, is there anything else? I, I, I know this sounds like I'm making a joke, but we really do end up talking about all of this. Yeah, I know. It sounds absurd talking from the Avengers Sin episode, but it sparked a lot of thoughts in us, and this is how our minds work. <laughs> So, I promise that we're not mentioning any of this to try to make, like, a black comedy joke of our own, but just be careful wading into this, because it's it's definitely not a normal episode for us. Yeah, consider this your trigger warning, folks. I am Maureen of Chicago. I am Megan, daughter of Michael and Lisa. And, and we, we are, are burdened, burdened with, with glorious, glorious podcast. Welcome back to the show where we talk about our favorite trickster god, Loki, now streaming on Disney+. Plus. And speaking of Disney Plus originals, uh, before we get to our main subject, uh, he actually had a new appearance on the latest episode of What If? Oh, yeah. Um, isn't, isn't this the one where... Uh, because... Uh, I haven't seen it yet, but but isn't this the one where, um, because Hank Pym just, you know, goes off his gourd and ends up, like, killing all of the Avengers <laughs> before that? It just means that there's nobody to stop him? Yeah, and uh, what's quite funny about that episode is near the end, uh, Nick Fury confronts him over it of, like, why did you kill Thor when I didn't even recruit- he didn't even join the Avengers yet. It was just a pure preemptive strike. <laughs> And Hank was like, okay, but knowing you, you absolutely would have recruited him the second he went to Earth. <laughs> well, I mean, for that matter, isn't Loki's uh, partial pretext on this also, you know, you killed my brother? Yeah, yeah. So basically, <laughs> as a side effect of Thor being uh, killed <clears throat> with all the other Avengers, save for Captain America, uh, Loki comes down to Earth and basically says, uh, you killed my brother consider this an act of war earth is mine by the way now does he have the now is he coming basically as king of asgard or is he coming at like you know with his little thanos army are we to assume that the events of the movie went differently no well he comes here very much still the king of asgard very much uh thor is he so his characterization is very much Thor 1, uh, in that he's still king of Asgard and his army is all Asgardians and Sif is okay. his uh, lieutenant. Oh, oh, that's, that's loaded now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. But, okay, so, so that's actually an interesting, uh, bit of context for this then, because it means that he probably, you know, is coming very sincerely in, in the sense of, you know, I mean, you know, conquering another planet because they they killed a member of your royal family does actually feel very conventionally Asgardian. 
True, um, but so it might not even. It, it, you know what? Come to think of it, like it, it. I, you know, I know that it's probably supposed to be a pretext, but you know what? He probably is genuinely mourning his brother when this happens. I'm sure. It just that the way they go about it is like Tom's vocal delivery is very much Saturday morning cartoon villain, like with very little of his usual uh, nuance to be found. Well, you know, considering he's such a face actor. <laughs> Which was something that I was reminded of um, rewatching Avengers and then actually uh, putting myself through the low-key scenes in that again by watching further into the Brother Thor cut. Um, and yeah, I I forgot, especially, in, especially when he's playing him in that mode, just how much face acting there's going on that's not just the, um, the Circa, the series, uh, you know, various, like, frowns and eye widenings and stuff. I mean, there's a lot more head movement going on in this Yeah, movie. hence all the Tumblr. Do you see this scene? This scene right here where he blinks slightly slower than usual. This means all of the trauma he went through. Well, not just that, but also because, you know, the brother of Thorcut does edit in um, a bunch of the deleted scenes and stuff because, you know, it helps to contextualize him as the main character of this version. You know, I'm I'm thinking of the scene where uh, where Clint is completely brainwashed and under his control, and they have like almost like their little uh, overlord henchman chat in in like the catacombs mm-hmm. or whatever. And and there's a part in that where I know that so- I know that a lot of it is the lighting, but I I don't know if this was something that the lighting people figured out or if he did it. They they take a lot of advantage to light his face in that, so he looks like a goddamn skull. Oh, yeah. I mean, just like in general, uh, Loki styling in the Avengers was definitely the most theatrical, very, uh, I mean, he's basically a JRPG villain in that movie, like, right, right yeah. down to the excess buckles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, um, but that one, that really hit me when you mentioned the, um, the really going all in on the vocal delivery because, you know, when he does tend to make the facial expressions and stuff like that, I guess maybe because he's working in a, um, a medium where he doesn't get to do that, he feels like he really has to sell it with his voice. I don't know. Perhaps, but by the end of the episode, even <laughs> though uh, Loki technically gets justice uh, for Thor's death, that's still not enough for him, and he just has to announce that uh, he's plan to conquer Earth using his same speech of, uh, you secretly crave, uh, subjugation, only this time it's at the UN. This, where is this coming from, though? Like, because in the, you know, it, at least now as it's been contextualized, like, that's so clearly something that was kind of, you know, knocked into his head. Something that really stood out to me is to a point where I feel really stupid for not noticing it before is I, I didn't realize the extent to which he really does have the brainwashed eyes. Oh, yeah. And I think I just didn't think of it because his eyes are such a pale blue to begin with. But in this case, it was just like, wow, yeah. They those really totally up the saturation. It. Yeah. Yeah. And and also, you know, something else that uh, that struck me about that is that, you know, it does it does kind of exaggerate your personality when you're like that, like, yeah, well, uh, like I mean, it also is really well borne out with uh, 
with Hawkeye and Dr. Selvig as well. Well, it's canon uh, in the movie that uh, the Tesseract pretty much brings out your worst impulses to the surface. That's yeah, why everybody I, got... I do, mm-hmm. I do in, that, in light of that... I guess it's kind of funny that apparently uh, apparently Clint Barton's worst impulses are, I guess, being a yes man. (laughs) Which, I mean, you know, even speaking as somebody who finds MCU Hawkeye just, like, absolutely insufferable and not in the usual fun way that you describe somebody as being insufferable. Who asked for this man? Every every time he's there, I'm just like, why are you here? Why exactly. did they pick this character of all characters? Like, I mean, there were so many other... There were so many... I know that they wanted to have, like, one normal person on the team, so to speak. But there were so many other people that they could have used for that. Like, I mean, you know, they could very well have introduced Luke Cage earlier or something like that. <laughs> You know, he would have he would have been a good addition or to this. Or simply cast another actor other than Jeremy Renner as him. That would also have been very helpful. And you know, for that matter, they, you know, they could have actually remembered that you know he's supposed to be uh, very hard of hearing. I I don't I don't think he's entirely deaf, but I do know that he does rely a lot on hearing aids and lip reading in the comics. Mm-hmm. And it's. And it's a shame because you know what? I'm, I'm now I'm just thinking if, if you haven't read the Matt Fraction <laughs> Hawkeye run, if you're listening to this, that is an absolute delight. Um, that 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 comic is is incredible, and it has so many great running jokes in it, and it's it just makes the fact that MCU Clint Barton is the way he is that much more frustrating. And also, I can't believe that, you know, even when they knew that people were going to be that attached to this version of the character and they had more of a chance to flesh MCU Clint out, they decided to, like, give him a family and all that stuff. <laughs> when, like, the entire point of, of Matt Fraction's Hawkeye is that he's, he's kind of a disaster and he lives alone. <laughs> and, he's, and he has so little control over his life in, like, the, the stew pickles making pudding oh, at God. three in the morning sense. That, you know, if he accidentally spills his coffee, he's the kind of person who just stares at it and just goes, oh, coffee, no. That's exactly why it's going to be so interesting with the new uh, Hawkeye show on Disney Plus that they, it looks like all the art direction and like promotional styling is deliberately reminiscent of Matt Fraction's arc. And yet, how are they going to incorporate that with what they've already have with him? Yeah, I mean, maybe they're just going to have to throw, like, maybe maybe they're just going to have to crank up, like, Kate's disasterness instead. I don't know. <laughs> maybe maybe she's going to kind of have to carry that for both of them. But that would just make his character even more boring than usual, though, of him having to be, like, the oh, straight man. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's the thing. I just... <laughs> In this house, we do not respect MCU Clint Barton. No. <laughs> Uh, so before... Uh, well, oh, sorry. Okay. I, I was just gonna say, you know who else we don't respect in this house? Joss Whedon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, uh... Yeah, I feel like throughout this episode, uh, whenever you or I mention Joss Whedon by name, I'm just gonna end it with, because honestly, fuck that guy. Yeah, you know, I... 
I don't know if I mentioned this on the show, but I actually met him once very briefly and he actually made a joke about something that I had just mentioned being a little bit disappointed and sensitive about. So Ah. there you go. Yeah. I will say, however, that in the same moment I met Kevin Feige and you know what? I will give him credit. He was very polite. Hmm. (laughs) He was, he was very decent. (laughs) Uh, yeah, so uh, going into this, go talking about this movie, uh, it really does bring like tons of memories back of just how big this movie was because it was quite literally like the first of its kind. It was like at the time of its release, it was kind of like this huge gamble and, of like, uh, I guess are people that going the show? to yeah, want the show. to see a movie filled with characters from like different worlds and different plot lines and like how can these all mesh together and like are people willing to like see like four other movies just for this one to make sense and of course you all know the answer is absolutely yes if not four or five how about 20 movies although the big irony of that becoming the eventual process there is that despite that there are parts of this movie that honestly border on the generic and that really stands out 10 years later but yeah, watching this movie again reaffirmed uh, what I already felt when I saw it the first couple of times, which was this is very much a... This is the characters of the MCU at their most Saturday morning. It's basically like an Americanized, billion-dollar budget uh, tokusatsu show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it very much is a, you know, we're going to play the hits, and that... You know, and obviously that means you're not going to get any deep cuts. Not that, not, not that most of these characters really quite had deep cuts to go into. Although it really does show that the one character in this that really does benefit from that is Tony Stark because he already had two movies under his belt by that point. And his entire dialogue is nothing but weed and quips. Yeah, but you know what? I small praise though this is that does work when it's Tony Stark. Yes, that. He's like he definitely benefits the most from having that to make most sense to his character. Yeah, that's that's the thing. And actually, you know, conversely, I think the fact that you know Thor and Loki, to a lesser extent, the fact that they can't really talk in weed and quips really shows. And in this, it, the stiltedness of some of their dialogue when they're talking to each other really stood out to me in this in this rewatch. Hmm. I didn't have too much of a grievance with their dialogue. I thought, like, they got all of their feelings across. Uh, well, yeah, it just it just seemed like the choice of language was very formal to probably probably to try to get around the whole, you know, the whole thee and thou fake Shakespearean English that they tended to speak in the comics for a very long time. Although, while we're talking about the genericness of this it is worth pointing out, loath as I am to give Joss Whedon any bit of quarter for anything. It is worth remembering that he is not actually the one who came up with the plot of this movie. And in fact, that was a direct studio mandate from the one person in this who might be even more this fucking guy, Mike <laughs> Perlmutter. Boo! 
you might remember Ike Perlmutter as being the reason why we actually didn't get a Black Widow movie until it was kind of too late to be able to do a proper Black Widow movie and why the Black Widow movie apparently kind of sucked. And, and that was also the reason why we didn't get any Black Panther or Captain Marvel movies. And also, for that matter, the main reason that we didn't get a whole lot of Black Widow merchandise, even though, you know, little girls were in love with this character. Mm-hmm. And it was just simply that he had decided that girl toys for a superhero movie wouldn't sell. Mind you, we're now 10 years on and they can publish super girly YA novels based on this cinematic universe. And what do you know? They fly off the shelves like hotcakes. And for that matter, the character of Kamala Khan, who is the new Ms. Marvel, she's she's not new, new. I mean, she's been around, I think, at this point for a good seven or eight years in the comics. But the current young Ms. Marvel, you know, she was actually created as essentially an in-universe young teenage Avengers fangirl. But that kind of thing, I guess, that just didn't fit into Ike Perlmutter's narrow little worldview when this movie came out. And on top of that, possibly more so than even, like, the later movies. And you know what? I I do think that there is still, merchandise-driven as these things are and always will be, there is still a noticeable difference between the, uh, the, because the later movies, even though they're there to churn out merchandise, they churn it out by putting in character after character after character, whereas the Perlmutter era was marked a lot more by a lot more generic henchmen. Hmm. If you if you think about it, because I mean, you know, I say this as somebody who's only seen the highlights reel, but, you know, compare the Chitauri army to, you know, in uh, in Endgame, you have, you know, suddenly you have all of these other children of Thanos. They serve the same functional purpose, except now you have to know who all these people are. Ah, I get I see. If you think about it that way. Yeah. And or like. Or, you know, or you think about how outside of the outside of the first Thor movie, how a lot of these movies really didn't worry about packing them with too much of the supporting cast. But you notice that eventually there stopped being as many generic backup side characters that might say be good for padding out Lego sets. And you started having a lot more characters with names and histories and you know, enough lines to establish a personality, and they're there to sell action figures to the adults. Hmm. Good point. Yeah, because uh, the thing about The Avengers is it isn't just a movie or, like, a culmination of everything came before it. It really is, like, the end point of phase one of the MCU. And one of the things that, that goes with that... And the reason that I say that we can't quite blame Joss Whedon for this, but boy, can we blame Ike Perlmutter for some of this, is that it was handed down from Perlmutter, apparently, that the stipulations for this movie were going to be Loki has to be the big bad, because in the comics, he was the big bad that they came together against, even though in the comics, his his whole thing was, wasn't it just like causing, wasn't it just like causing problems at the circus with the Hulk? <laughs> Oh god, I haven't everybody. I haven't read issue one of the Avengers in a very long time, so my memory's very fuzzy on that. It was something like that. It was it really was just it I, I'm pretty sure it really was just him provoking the Hulk into causing a major issue at a circus, and this somehow if I remember correctly, um uh 
God, what what's his name? Rick somebody, the Hulk's uh teenage sidekick in the in the early comics. The kid that he ran that, that Bruce Banner ran to get out of the gamma ray blast zone, and that's why he ended up irradiated in the first place. Um, I cannot remember his last name. I'm pretty sure his name was Rick. He felt bad for what had happened, so his his whole thing in the early comics was to basically be the Hulk's minder. Oh. And what he tried and basically when this started going on, I don't know if he was I don't know if he was aware of Loki or something at the time, but he and his, you know, 60s comic teenage friends pulled out their ham radio and they decided that they were going to call up the Fantastic Four about this, but instead Ant-Man and the Wasp intercepted it. <laughs> and they went to go deal with it instead and I guess that was I guess that was what they did at the time to explain why another team of heroes didn't intervene with something. Instead of having to come up with a well, we have a we have a non-intervention promise. <laughs> like I guess. Well, I love the reason why the Avengers exists at all is because Stanley and Jack Kirby were just low on ideas at the time, and there was pressure to like create something new, like a new title, a new series, but they couldn't come up with a new character, so they thought, okay, well, let's just put a lot of pre-existing characters we have and make them team up. Yeah. <laughs> And, and they're only called the Avengers in the comics because Janet Van Dyne, the Wasp, suggests it because she thinks it sounds catchy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Loki was stipulated that he had to be the villain, but it also had to take place in New York, which, if you think about it, is a little bit of a weird decision, if only because there are already five major everybody's heard of them superheroes that are associated with New York City in the comics that hadn't appeared in the MCU at that at that point and for that matter at the time were not able to appear in the MCU and that's that most people know that Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four operate out of New York and then obviously you know you go a level deeper and then you've got the whole gang over in Hell's Kitchen but you know it it, it is a very interesting situation when they could have just as easily set it in Los Angeles or San Francisco or something like that, you know? And then the thing that I think probably contributed the most to the structure that this movie had to conform to, apparently, was that there had to be an alien invasion. And so the plot of this movie was largely sketched out by the fact that it needed to have both Loki and an alien invasion. That definitely explains a lot. At least it didn't have to require a giant robotic spider, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, it has, like... It does have, like, a giant flying whale skeleton. <laughs> True, that's very close enough. It does have a, it does have a, fly, a flying uh, whale skeleton that apparently... Um, conveniently doesn't kill anybody oh yes of course <laughs> that's that you know that's the th here's the you know what you know what really gets me is as much as they make a big deal out of you know he killed 80 people in three days i feel like at one point they ended up like clarifying that the entire death toll from loki's 12 day coke bender <laughs> was I think they ended up clarifying that he only killed like 87 people. And I know that saying only is doing a lot of work in this case. But when you think about the ending of that movie and the fact that apparently 80 of those people got cleared off in the first two days, it, it really is just like this. 
I, I, you know, the Coke bender jokes, they, they really work here. It's oh, just yeah. as, as I'm watching this, then where I'm just like, Oh dude, <laughs> dude, are you going <clears> to, <throat> it just makes me think of this, this thread I saw on Twitter the other day where people were talking about, you know, about how surreal it was for them to be in high school in the early two thousands and to just, and how, run of the mill it was at the time to take salvia and just like experience like an absolute horror story in about seven seconds and then be like i'm good <laughs> and that's kind of what it feels like here like maybe it wasn't a coke bender maybe loki just hit the salvia really hard like i don't know i i've never tried it i know that sounds like a very specific denial but <laughs> i've i've haven't look, we look. all not tried salvia folks <laughs> <laughs> listen listen i I mean, listen, the first time I tried a pot brownie, I was, I was bent over a toilet for like six hours. I, if, if that's going on, I'm not, gonna, <laughs> I'm not going to try anything that apparently has a high tendency to make people think they're triangles. There were a lot of people in that thread who apparently experienced hallucinations of being triangles. Ah, rather than <laughs> just triangular hair points. God, you know... <laughs> You know what's really killing me now about the hair points is and, and like his whole hair situation in this movie is uh friends a few weeks ago, right before my life went to hell in a very different way. I'll clarify that later. Um I actually I got my hair trimmed for the first time in a while and it was finally long enough to uh layer a little bit more severely. If I didn't curl it it would probably be about what you would consider like a shag haircut or something and let me tell you that is exactly what my hair does now when it's wet and all of a sudden I just realized like wow he you know if you think about that on you know somebody mask presenting like Loki I'm just like so you're saying that by the time of this movie if it were still straightened out like he's apparently doing here you know if it wasn't curling like his hair normally does but he didn't slick it back. He would just have, like, straight-up Ramon's hair going on right now. <laughs> Wild. I mean, I think I've mentioned this before, but after eight days, or, like, if I've had, like, a really intense workout, my hair just does that flip naturally at the ends. But just the ends. Oh, yeah, but it's it's just, you know, when you think about, like, the layers going down my hair now, <laughs> and then if you think about it being pushed, you know... I, I had a very interesting couple of weeks here, folks. I, I had a COVID scare that turned out to not be COVID, um, but I was still out of work for three days because of this. This was right after I had uh, injured my hip badly enough to keep me out of work another day. And then by the end of it, uh, last Friday, it turned out that there was enough cat hair in my AC vent that it started spraying water all over my bed and I had to get a new mattress. It's been really fun to be me lately. <laughs> But, you know, when you're sick, you don't tend to wash your hair. And that was how I discovered, oh, this is what's going on with Loki's hair in Avengers. Uh, so, uh, what, when did, so when did you see this movie? Like, what were the circumstances when you saw this movie for the first time? Like, just how crowded was the theater? Like, was it like a really receptive audience experience? Oh, so fun fact, I actually saw this movie almost a month before it was released. That's right. I remember you were at the premiere. Well, I I was I was at the premiere, although I didn't get to go into it then. Um, 
I ended up having a very surreal experience of sitting outside uh, Starbucks on Hollywood Boulevard while this was going on. And then um, I right after right after I uh, flew back, then I had to get up at stupid o'clock in the morning. I was living on Staten Island at the time to head out to the city to wait in line outside of the AMC on 42nd Street to go to a preview showing that I had registered for a few days earlier. Um, I, I basically had my own little cross-country Avengers tour. I, I For the premiere, I was in... I was in Los Angeles for less than 48 hours, and that's an experience I never want to do again. <laughs> like, flying anywhere that far away to barely be there. So um, so it was a very strange experience because, um, because it was a preview showing. They actually were, like, checking our bags beforehand, and we had, like, like a little tag claim system. We had to turn our phones over. No, it's If I remember... If I remember correctly, they actually made me turn my um, my computer over as well. I had my laptop in my bag, even though it's like, am I? What did they think I was going to do? Open up the laptop in the theater and turn it around? <laughs> um, but you know, we had to check everything in. At the time, there actually was no shawarma scene at the end. Ah. Oh. They had not yet edited and tacked that on. And now the funny thing is, is that I do actually remember at the premiere. Uh, Chris Evans actually made a joke about how they had to get together and, and do one last reshoot after the premiere. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what it was. And I know that this is common knowledge by this point, but if, when you watch that scene, you'll notice that Steve is leaning on his hand and it's kind of obscuring the lower half of his face. And that's because Chris Evans had a beard at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was not willing to part ways with it. Yeah. Yeah, and and for that matter, um, it's it's also funny to realize that at least for I don't I don't know for I don't know for the movie in general, um, but at least for that scene, to my understanding, he's not even wearing a full wig. It is literally like a half wig because you know his his hair was buzz cut at the time. Oh, that's right. So when you think about yeah. how, how short the sides of Steve's hair are from that angle, you don't have to put a full wig on him. <laughs> you can just you can basically just put on you know half a lace front and kind of call it a day. But that's why you can't see his face properly in that scene. <laughs> so it was it was an interesting experience, and you know obviously there were no trailers or anything beforehand. It was you know everybody just talk 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 turned off the lights. They didn't even have to warn anybody about their cell phones because everybody had turned them over. And then it just, and then it just started. And then afterward, we were basically advised to not spoil anything. They didn't make us sign NDAs or anything. That's a prison. Yeah, they did. I mean, I feel like this might have been like one last monitor, like one last casual, um, like test screening basically because the other thing was is that this was another movie that they intended to release in 3d and what we saw we saw it in 2d <coughs> pardon me and i mean there were definitely some really wild reactions at part of this um i remember one of the biggest ones was uh was loki getting hulked oh yeah I think Which every audience just like was just brought down the house with that scene. 
I I mean, I I have to admit, and, and you know what? Come to think of it, I might be misremembering it. They, when I say that, because I remember that they actually had people like stationed to watch the audience, and it might have been just to make sure nobody had like a secret second cell phone or something, but it might have also been to like monitor the reactions or something. I feel like I, I could swear that when I saw that movie, they had a bone crunch sound effect <laughs> on that part. And because I remember that I started laughing when he picked him up. And then it just I remember my face straight up going into horror <laughs> at that point. Because that and the thing is, is that I'm not saying like, oh, yes, it was because I personally at one preview showing looked horrified. It's kind of one of those things more that like if it wasn't just me, <laughs> because I don't think it can have been just me. And you think about them doing this in like a few major cities around the country it might very well have been that if they noticed enough people suddenly going from, you know, laughing to all of a sudden just absolutely aghast Jesus stop, Christ faces. Stop! He's already dead! God, no, exactly. Because <laughs> the thing is, is that when I rewatched it, I didn't notice anything but, like, the stone cracking sounds. And that's very different because that isn't, like, the foley of somebody, like, crushing an eggshell in their fist. You know, the, the bone crushing sound is a very specific foley sound effect. And in this case, all it was was like the sound of like a quarry, you know, of the of the marble floor breaking up. Um, and so that was that was the thing. And also, um, to be honest, I I I just it's it's funny because now we have an entire series that leads directly off of this movie in a way where you know he said his most lovable. But I remember actually being really horrified by him in this movie. Well, that was really the point. I mean, I know. It, yeah, I know that's I know that's the point. But I still I, you know, because I'd been at the I'd been at the premiere just a couple of days earlier. And, you know, and, and I remember that's that's the only time I think that I actually ended up getting like hugged by Tom. And I remember just a couple of, I, I remember actually like we were sitting at the, at one of the Times Square McDonald's, I think one of the ones that doesn't even exist anymore after this. And somebody was like, you're okay. Are you okay? And I think I literally just said like, I hugged that two days ago. <laughs> and, and honestly, it took me a couple of days to even figure out how I felt about the movie. And, you know, and, and part of this is just, even though it's it's not comparable, but, but you know, it, like, it's not fully comparable, I should say. But, you know, I, I have to admit that, that the movie was kind of hard for me, considering I, 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 I really hope it doesn't, it's not a problem for me to admit this on here. But, you know, considering that my brother once tried to commit suicide and went through a very hard period after that, it was actually kind of hard for me to watch specifically in that light. I, I empathized very strongly with Thor in this movie, probably more than I was necessarily supposed to. And it um, it actually made it difficult for me to rewatch the movie. There was actually one point when I went back to California that summer that my grandma wanted to take me to see the movie again, and I actually ended up having a panic attack in the car. I didn't want to go in and watch that again. Hmm. Um, I, I didn't mean to, like, ruin the whole vibe <laughs> of this episode, but it, it did, you know, and for the record, my brother is fine and he never tried to take over the world. And um, 
and you know, and he's he's actually in training right now to be a paramedic. He's he's been married for about five years now. He's doing great. Um, but it was it was just that I guess it just ripped up a whole bunch of emotions that I kind of forgot I had about that. So I saw the movie uh, during the midnight show on my twenty fifth birthday. And I went dressed up as Black Widow, and it was at, like, this really big theater uh, in Chicago, uh, right by Navy Pier. And there were so many cosplayers. I'm pretty sure that was the midnight screening movie that had, like, the most uh, people dressed up just for the movie. And oh, there, yeah. Yeah, there was a really good Iron Man. There were lots of uh, girls as Loki. Uh <laughs> And uh, it was, like, I we got, like, filmed afterwards. There was, like, a little news crew outside for interviews. And it was definitely one of the best, like, theater experiences I've ever had of, like, the audience was, like, basically perfect. Like, they applauded and they laughed exactly where they needed to. Like, there was so much palpable energy uh, in the theater. <laughs> Although... Uh, going back to what was established earlier, like, there's this just very, there's this very contradictory, there's a very contradictory thing with Loki of, like, portrayed as the villain, but it's, like, that he has the role of villain thrust upon him. Because when he first uh, appeared on screen, like, everything about the staging is telling you this is the villain. He's scary and terrified and can do so much evil. And all the girls went, oh my god, it's him! <laughs> god, yeah, no, there, there was definitely some of that. I, I, I had gone with, um, I, I had a, one of my friends had gone with me and I actually remember her grabbing my wrist at that point. Shout out to you, Cassie. <laughs> uh, but there was uh, another detail that I will never forget it. Like, near the very end, uh, there was this man sitting next to me. And when it showed the reveal of Thanos, I swear to Christ, I saw a single tear drop down his cheek. <laughs> I, I'm so sorry. The, the obligatory, the obligatory uh, terror joke of the night is just as soon as you said that, I just had the single most cursed image <laughs> of just captioning Fitz James's single tear in the Karen Walk scene with "Is that Thanos, Francis?" <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Oh god! You know what the you know what the crazy thing about that is though is that. I I knew about the I knew about the Thanos reveal like a year in advance because there was because while they were uh, while they were filming it somebody actually mentioned that to me oh wow because <laughs> I got I got to watch part of the the filming process I mentioned this beforehand the a lot of the shooting around um, Grand Central Station uh, behind which is. I think it's the MetLife building still. I don't know, but there's there's another skyscraper that sits in the place where uh, Stark Tower is composited in the movie, and so they did a lot of the filming actually around uh, around Grand Central, which is 
another thing that's interesting to note 10 years on, because they do so much less location filming on these things now. Oh, yeah. That's definitely something you notice. Yeah, it was, you know, some of the aerial shots in this movie are are practically a time capsule considering, you know, they filmed this around the time I moved to the city. I, I had been living in New York City for all of two or three months when I was when I watched them film part of it. And so seeing things like um, like the the new current Tower One still under construction during Tony's first flight scene in this and, um, you know, during most of the scenes on Stark Tower, you can actually see the southern tip of Roosevelt Island in the river, and it's just brush. It's, you know, it's not developed over. That's now a park with, like, a pier at the end. Um, I actually spotted, on this watch, without even really looking for them, I spotted a number of buildings that I've actually worked in as a nanny. Hmm. And that was very strange, watching it now. Oh. But it... It really, it really lines it up how much, um, even though I know that a lot of like the Stark Tower scenes and stuff would obviously have been done in a studio because the building doesn't exist, they still clearly composited actual aerial footage into the background to make it work. To the point where there's actually a little bit of disconnect in some of them because you have buildings on fire in Manhattan and then you can still see the East River Ferry just chugging along, along placidly. And let me tell you, they stop the East River Ferry if it's raining a little too hard. <laughs> so, you know, acceptable breaks from reality. I don't know. Um, oh, so something that I only put together several years later is, um, I don't know if this is true, although it seems like the kind of thing that would inspire this very specific sort of image. But the whole idea of a portal up into the sky that is represented as a tower of glowing blue light that this movie uses pretty strongly, actually, you know, when the when the portal gets opened up so the Chitauri army can come in. I'm pretty sure that that image was actually inspired by what was reported outside of the Chernobyl power plant after the explosion. Oh, I thought you were going to say, and that image has been used in at least, like, seven blockbuster films since then. Oh, no, I, no, I mean, it has, it has, but I, you know, I, speaking of things that I got to see early, you know, I actually, uh, and for that matter, things that have uh, Stolen Skarsgård in them, um, I saw the first two episodes of, um, of the HBO Chernobyl miniseries early because they showed them at the Tribeca Film Festival. And I I had gone to go see it because uh, Jared Harris and Adam Nagaitis are both in it and they were both on the terror as well. And when, and so very early on, um, the uh, Adam Nagaitis's character's wife, who's played by Jesse Buckley, gets up in the middle of the night, I think to like go to the bathroom and get a drink of water. And that's when the, um, the explosion happens at the plant a couple miles away. And when she looks back over it, that, that's what it looks like. The plant is on fire and there is a bl glowing blue column of light coming out of it. And at first I was kind of like, wow, that's a very specific image to put in, you know, or is that just like a dramatization of it or something, you know, cause that seemed like, the kind of image that, you know, at this point you so associate it with blockbuster movies that you wouldn't think that they would put it in something like this. And I ended up doing a little bit of research digging, and it turns out that, yes, that is actually what eyewitnesses reported seeing the Chernobyl power plant looking like at that point. 
And I was, and I just, it gave me this really grody feeling, <laughs> to be honest. Um, if that was something that like somebody in the West had read one point and was like, wow, I really have to use that in an alien invasion movie. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Because it's clearly better to accept that as, oh, clearly that has to be the work of aliens and not the folly of mankind. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so the, for the record, the, um, the reason that there was the glowing beam at, uh, Chernobyl was because during the and after the initial explosion, um, from what I understand, the radiation hadn't quite started penetrating the outer walls of the plant yet. It hadn't so started to totally leak out. At that point, it was coming straight up from where the roof had caved in. And so that was because it was actually ionizing the air. Um, which is why, you know, later on when they tried to fly helicopters over it, they couldn't fly it directly over it because that same beam, even though you couldn't see it during the day, was actually like deactivating their helicopter equipment and causing it to malfunction and the helicopters would crash. Um, and with that in mind, and also keeping in mind, you know, it does... <sighs> Chernobyl comparisons aside, because obviously this is just me being like, mm, that's a weird place to get your image for a blockbuster movie. The other thing that really stands out to me in retrospect is how much they assumed that this would have just been like a bad afternoon for everybody in New York. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> one of my first thoughts watching the Daredevil series for the first time was like, I really like this show, but there's one major flaw, and it's not even really the show's fault. It's that I cannot accept that this New York is supposed to take place in the exact same reality where the Avengers happened, because the tone, how people react to disaster, is just, like, so completely different than what we saw theatrically. Yeah, I, yeah, you know, on you know on the, the Netflix MCU movies, People react to things pretty realistically. <laughs> it's very grounded. People, but then, but then you know you have this movie, and people are just like, "Oh no, is that a giant falling whale skeleton? I'm going to get out of the way." Yeah. Like you know, like you know, they they act. They act know, like they're in a tokusatsu. Yeah, yeah, and well, and the other thing that, you know, this is this is the episode where I get really dark, I guess, because. Um, you know, every, I'm not about to literally make a 9-11 comparison. Don't worry when I begin it with this. But, you know, the 9-11 memorial out here that they do every year is they, they light beams of light into the sky from the footprints of the original towers. And those, even though they happen every year, you know, when they hit the clouds, sometimes they make the clouds glow. And apparently there have been suicides from people seeing that. And being like, oh shit, the world is ending. You know, it, like to the point where they have to really make sure that they publicize it, that it's happening. So that people don't see this and think that it's, you know, some kind of horrible cosmic event. And so with that in mind, when you think about the fact that they open up a goddamn wormhole over Stark Tower, which is a very major part of the skyline in this version of New York City... You know, there there were a number of times after this movie came out where I would just, like, I would be over in Queens or something, and I would look over and I could immediately pick out the MetLife building. Like, I don't think you understand how visible this would have been for miles around. <laughs> and, you know, and maybe this is just a side effect of me having come to this from, you know, from Watchmen fandom or something where the effects of the squid are dealt with very, very severely. It's, 
it, it still just kind of struck me as like, do you know the absolute cosmic terror that this would inspire in most people? Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because <laughs> when I first saw this movie in theaters, <clears throat> I felt this surge of optimism in a very weird way because I felt like they're showing the biggest movie of the year have New York City being attacked and I feel totally okay with this. <laughs> oh, how times have changed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it definitely feels a little bit like, you know, in retrospect, there is a really uncomfortable sense of, of kind of capitalizing on that comparison. I think, you know, what if this happened and everything was okay? Yeah, basically. <laughs> and it's and it's really hard to not, I mean, even, even aside from the absolutely horrible never again culture that developed out of it like I'm not even thinking of that I mean I'm I'm just thinking of you know you know shortly after I moved out here you know I'm from California we have earthquakes I I grew up experiencing several minor earthquakes that doesn't happen out here and I had taken my nanny kids um over to a neighbor's pool and I was literally sitting around there talking to a bunch of the other kids there's moms and I mentioned something about how oh every time I'm in the city and I feel a train go by under un, underfoot I still kind of tend to go into earthquake mode you know I tend to grab a table try to feel how intense it is and then you know by that point it's passed but you know I was kind of automatically latching into adjusting to that and they all kind of laughed and, and it makes sense that they started to laugh and I'm not kidding within 10 minutes there was an earthquake I am not bullshitting this at all. If you look it up, there was an earthquake in New York City in the summer of 2011. And if I remember correctly, it didn't actually cause any injuries whatsoever, except for, uh, I guess, one guy's like fancy globe got knocked off of his shelf and it broke his collarbone. But it was completely, it was completely inconsequential, all things considered. But when it struck there, the kids didn't notice that they were in the pool I just, I looked up at the cabinet doors flapping and I was like, oh, I think you're having a little earthquake. And I, and I looked around and I saw that all of the other, all of these other people sitting there were terrified. And it hit me afterward, especially because one of them, one of them had mentioned earlier that um, her husband came this close to being trapped under the World Trade Center site because the train that he was on got paused there after I, I think she said something like they paused it there at first after one of the plane strikes and then it went and then they realized oh shit we need to get the train out from under there so they passed him forward and apparently within another couple of minutes that was when one of the first that was when the first tower fell so it suddenly hit me like oh yeah these these people are gonna have a very very different and less accustomed sense of what it means when the ground starts shaking and it's really hard to not think of that watching this movie at this point. And I mean, especially with us recording at this time of year and with, you know, pulling out of this God awful forever war and all that, like, you know, we, we normally don't get this deep on, uh, here on a burden with glorious podcast, but there's a lot of very loaded subtext to this movie that is, it's kind of uncomfortable to look back on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so to go into uh still darker but slightly lighter territory uh loki's whole motivation 
for his plan in this. It's basically him trying to do what he believed Odin did to so many other realms, you know? And he yeah. justifies that later in the Dark World of, like, I'm simply doing what you did. Like, why should I be held to accountability different than you are? Yeah, and on top of that, he's he's completely mind-fucked in this movie. Oh, and it absolutely. Is, it's not quite like what I talked about in the last episode when talking about how Alec Guinness has that great little pause in A New Hope after uh, Luke asks Obi-Wan about his father, that if you didn't know better, you would think that he knew that Darth Vader was actually Anakin and all that. Like, you could read that in there so clearly. I don't think that's what's going on here. I, I very much get the impression that it was just common knowledge on set that Loki was totally mind-fucked. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no way he's not playing him as just completely around the bend in this movie. Oh, yeah. I remember... Uh... Comic-Con the next year when Tom appeared for, like, a little fan Q&A at uh, Petco Park, uh, so many people, myself included, they all wanted to know what exactly happened between Loki's fall and him and the Avengers, because something clearly... Other than apparently being, other than apparently being, like, you know, gaslit into thinking that, you know, he was murdered. yeah. Yeah, and we were so frustrated because, like, Tom was very, like, vagueish about it and saying things that we kind of already assumed, but we just, like, wanted, like, so much more details of, like, okay, but, like, how does this help our fanfic, you know? I mean, it's really striking when you watch them lined up or if you happen to, uh, you know, when you watch the Loki Brother of Thor cut, it is honestly devastating to see him come back like this because it really lines it up with you know even at his worst in the first Thor movie he's he's crying he's he's snotting all over the place he's in the middle of a breakdown and you get the impression that that you know had it played out a little bit differently that you know he was this close to probably just kind of collapsing and hugging his own knees and you know and or that uh or that, you know, maybe if Odin had said something a little bit different and hauled him up, he probably would have collapsed on both of them sobbing. Like, that's well, the vibe I get from that movie. And then when you see him come back like this, it's like, oh, Jesus Christ, what happened to you? Well, the thing is, like, the reason Loki let go is because it's just so fascinating how Odin said no Loki, but Thor said Loki no. And in just like two words, we know exactly the difference between these characters and how they see Loki and what he needs to hear from them. Yeah. Yeah. And and just and you know, it's it's the kind of thing that the way that it plays out in the movie, you get the impression that he remembers the fall. He probably at that point doesn't actually remember quite what led up to it, only, you know, that he was fighting with his, that he was king and he was fighting with his brother. And, you know, and clearly, you know, the mouth of Sauron or whoever the fuck that is, (laughs) you know, might very well have just been like, oh, yeah, the brother, the brother who threw you into that abyss. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that brother that brother you know (laughs) like that's kind of the vibe I get from this because it's like he has the basic memory of it intact but it's all warped at this point 
And I mean, although to be honest, that might, you know, the, the Doyleist explanation for that might actually just be Whedon having been informed of that, like, oh yeah, Loki falls into an abyss at the end. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> you know, maybe. That's entirely possible. <laughs> uh, you know, 15th century sexist slur aside, I did enjoy the scene of uh, Loki and Natasha trying to interrogate each other just for the simple fact that there was this really clever staging trick. And I don't know if it was intentional intentional or not, but it has this really good uh, view of when Loki is talking to Natasha of like saying, you lie and kill in the service of liars yeah. and killers. But it's, he's in a glass case and his reflection yeah. is visible the whole time. So it's yeah, really like... That whole, do you remember that whole weird period now like 10 years ago where they just kept putting villains in glass boxes? Yes! <laughs> You know, and it made sense when it was Magneto, but then it just kept happening. Oh, yes. That old, oh, wouldn't it be terrifying if the villain wanted to be caught this whole time? Yeah, no. God, yeah, because that was also always the other subtext to this, now that you say, yeah. Was there ever a case when they used that and that wasn't the plan? I don't know. (laughs) God, because now that you say that, it's like, yeah, if you, if you put them in the glass box, it's because they wanted to be in the glass box. <laughs> you know, because there was, because, you know, now that you say, I mean, I guess, I guess except Magneto, he's the big exception. But that's because um, with the exception of the early use of it with Hannibal Lecter, which is, which is fun when you consider Anthony Hopkins, mm-hmm. you know, um, <laughs> with the exception, it, although, you know, with him. With him, it makes sense because they they need to be able to keep the the twenty four they need to keep the full three sixty five view on him, and with Magneto, it makes sense because they can't give him metal to work with. Whereas in Skyfall and Star Trek Into Darkness, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Then we're just, I mean, I guess points to this movie for at least coming up with a good reason for them to have the glass cell there, other than for it to look cool. You know, it's it's a little Hulk terrarium. Yeah. But, it's a little Hulk pod. But I do love that it's staged like he's talking just as much to himself as he is Natasha. And that's definitely one of like yeah. the few like, oh, this is just like really clever visual storytelling. Yeah. Although then it has a and although and I also like the cut to uh, Steve finding the extremely shady weaponry over, you know, in the service of liars and killers. Yeah, which becomes way even deeper once you know the foreshadowing of uh, the Winter Soldier and what Hydra's up to. Yeah, yeah, that's... Yeah, there's there's a number of parts in this that are also... I mean, you know, it, it makes you realize that, you know, when the, when the council guy is just like, well, why didn't you give Loki to us to face justice? It's like, what the hell were you people planning on doing to him? Mm-hmm. like it it turns out that getting thrown into the next glass box was was probably one of the better things that could have happened to him under the circumstances and while we're thinking about nazis um, (laughs) i i would like to point out that i i still find the i i still find the the very transparent attempts at alluding to that in the stuttgart scene to be Honestly, I'm going to... I find it offensive. I find it shallow and offensive. 
I was just about to ask you which scene in this movie do you think uh, Joss Whedon screwed up Loki's characterization the most? Um, you know, the thing is, is that it's not even that I feel like it was screwing up his characterization because there's a lot about his characterization in this that can be hand-waved with he was completely mind-fucked at the time. But I, I, I feel like the attempting to link his, his big evil overlord speech in Stuttgart to a fucking Nazi rally could not be more backwards if they tried. No, no. And it's just... It is... It, it, I mean, it's it's just... it. It's just so you know, heavy-handed, and for that to... Ca- it's so to have- heavy-handed, and for that matter, for that matter, it's it's like, what he's saying there, what the contents of his speech... He's not even preaching Nazi ideology! <laughs> it's it, He's not even preaching fascism, because as we now have had multiple terrifying encounters with in the U.S. and on... And again and again, this is this is our darkest episode. I, I did not oh, expect this to be as dark of an episode as it is. We need to do extra but, light and fluffy for next episode to make up. But the the thing the you know the thing about the thing about fascism is that it the biggest part of it as an ideology is that it centers around social cohesion that involves calling the weak and the undesirable. And those that would be seen as being inconvenient to that social cohesion. And so a lot of it involves rallying people up in the sense of, we're all in this together. You know what you have to do, you know, that kind of thing. And that is, that is, if any, you know, that is the exact opposite of what's going on in that scene. Like it is, it is as close to, the opposite of fascism as you can be and and still come out of it as it being like a big villain speech. And, you know, and, and, you know, a big part, a big thing about fascism is, you know, they don't demand for you to kneel. They demand for you to stand strong beside them and crush your enemies. Yeah. And that's, that's, and that's the opposite of what's going on here. He's, he's not trying to lure these people into believing that you know if they just follow him you know you know i mean if you want something that has a really good demonstration of this in a very facile easy to access manner like you know the lion king pulls it off much better with be prepared i mean you know straight up stick with me and you'll never go hungry again you know that's you know they 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 are incredibly economical and good in that case of, you know, of displaying Scar as a fascist dictator, not just because they, they imitate um, Nazi propaganda reels, but also in, like, literally in what he says to them, what he promises them. And that is not what's going on in this scene. And then you have this man who is, who is not at all old enough to have lived through that, like, even as a small child. And they, and they throw in the, the fucking, you know... Pavlov's Dog Association Schindler's List violins, and it's just, it, it's, <laughs> it's just, it's incredibly offensive. And then to have Captain Goddamn America say, you know, the last time I was in Germany, <laughs> and there was a guy talking about being better than everyone, it didn't end well for him. And it's like, we fucking get it, Whedon. <laughs> we, we get it, and also, again, that's the terrifying thing, honestly, you know, that's... I mean, I guess maybe the, the, the really scary moral to pull out of this is that, you know what, in the, the, the real life evil dictators, they're not gonna, they're not gonna say, 
I rule you, I crush you, they're going to be like, here's my hand, I will raise you higher. Or they let you do it if you're a superstar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know what, at this point where, you know, think about the implications of Make America Great Again. Yeah. You know, they're not, it's, it's not, as an ideology, it's not sold, it's not sold on... It's not sold on universal subjugation. It's not sold on, you know what? It's sold on you don't have to do anything to improve yourself because just existing as a miserable piece of shit, you're still better than those people. And in fact, you need to get rid of those people because they're dragging you down. Like that, that's the, that is how fascism works. And that is, Absolutely not what is going on in that scene. That is that that is that is a child's schoolyard version of an evil overlord speech. That scene which will I, not be taught in film schools. That is and and it's just it is and putting it in fucking Germany to make the point, it's just like, you know what, fuck you, Joss Whedon, for a multitude of reasons. But but you know what, but but right now we're talking about fuck you for trying to put your fucking Holocaust porn in the fucking Avengers and, and in a way that doesn't even make any sense. Yeah. In a franchise that literally has Nazi villains in it. Right? Fuckity hell. Like, like you know, like this came out, what, a year after Captain America and it has the fucking Red Skull in it. Now, and I know that they kind of, I know that like MCU Red Skull, they do kind of make the idea that, you know, he's kind of go that you know he's mostly going along with this because he wants like esoteric technology and he actually doesn't give a fuck about the whole master race thing but the fact is is that there's all kinds of nazis in those movies and the fact is is that he's still a member of the third reich he's still going along with all of that it's all right there you know they have the fucking hail hydra salute and all that it's, it's very clearly you know all tied to the actual nazis in a way that makes fucking sense and while we're at it, fuck you, Joss Whedon, for thinking you're so clever by putting a 15th century misogynist to slain in your movie and having people check Google out and think, oh, that's what it means. And you know what really pisses me off is, okay, so pardon my language here. This is why we have the explicit marking on here. We're clearly supposed to make the, the connection to the word cunt. And here's the thing, as far as I know, Quim was never used as an insult. Quim was just literally a vulgar way of referring to the vagina. I know that that is technically what cunt is as well. But it was but never it has used another in meaning. that parlance. It was never used as a direct in it was never used as a direct insult like that. It was it was I mean, okay, so I know that we, I know that sometimes, you know, you use cock as an insult, but generally not nearly as much as like dick, for example. It's, you know, it, it was basically more equivalent to cock, you know, it was just a vulgar way of referring to that, to that type of genitalia. So, you know, he, he clearly thinks he's super clever by sneaking in a way to have the villain refer to the only female main character of the movie. I know that we also have Maria Hill in there, but you know, she's a supporting role. The only female main character of the movie, he's just like, oh, you know what? I'm going to get away with having the villain call her a whiny cunt. And it's like, congratulations, asshole. You didn't even pull that off. And the thing is, looking, now that we have the gift of foresight, seeing like every appearance Loki's been in, he never uses any misogynist slurs 
before or after. And it's like, that's just one scene. And it, it, it comes off as extraordinarily out of character, even for the mind fuckery. And honestly, even the particular, even, even the viciousness with which he like says he's going to kill Clint there and everything like that, that feels completely out of character. I feel like the closest we ever get to that in any of his other appearances is the indication that he might very, you know, I, I do think that there are potential overtones that you could read into him possibly threatening to assault Jane and, and the, you know, maybe I'll pay her a visit myself, but I don't think that's the only reading you can have of that. And I don't even know if it's necessarily the way that he was playing that, but it also just stands out because, you know, he also, even aside from the misogynistic, you know, vibes of that, there's also the fact that he's, he's very pointedly non-vulgar. Yeah. Like through the entire, like to the point where it, you know, in the series, it really, it, you know, one of the main ways that they telegraph that Sylvie is actually a different person, whether or not she's actually a Loki variant or not, is the fact that she curses all the time. You know, she doesn't have his lofty sentence structure. She says, you know, well, yeah, it was a shit plan. You know, <laughs> you know, she, it, it really, that, that scene, like, as much as I like what you're talking about with, like, the, the framing trick and all that, and I do think that's clever, and I think that the series did follow that up a little bit with, you know, the, the shot of him watching himself in another timeline say, you will never be a god. Like, I think that they did something very similar there with that in the series, but that scene in general, it, it sticks out like a sore thumb compared to everything else about how they've chosen to characterize this character, even when he is being a shithead. So on to a bit lighter subjects, a bit more positivity in this episode. <laughs> Man, uh, I, I can't wait for, I can't wait for the dark world. Yes! <laughs> we, we, oh my god, this is... How about we make okay. the how about we make the I, dark I... world our light episode? <laughs> Something okay. <clears throat> that actually reminds me. Um, Gibson apparently has some dark world related uh, behind the scenes material to give us about some of the uh, issues that they had in all the reshoots and all that. Okay. Yeah. So. So moving somewhere lighter. That's where we were. So, which scene do you think was the most? well-written or just like really understood Loki the best? Um, I mean, you know, I do feel like he was definitely the best whenever he was dealing with his brother in this. Um, and when I, even when I mentioned that I felt like some of the way that they speak to each other came across a little bit more stilted than it does in a lot of the other, uh, movies that they're in. I still think that it, um, I still think that that was the most where I was like, Oh yeah, there's my boy. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, I definitely think that the scene with uh, them on uh, the cliff at night when him, he's trying to, like, say, like, why don't you just come home with me? Or, like, the scene at Stark Tower yeah. when Thor is just trying to reason with him. Those were definitely the most well-written for Loki's character. And they really show, uh, like, deep down, of course he wants to go back with Thor. Of course he wants to, like, listen to reason. But he is in a position where he just can't do that. Well, and also probably that movie's biggest sign of the Loki to come is right after Thor begs him to listen and immediately gets knocked out of frame by Iron Man and Loki just stands there and blinks and just goes, 
I'm listening. (laughs) That is, that is the biggest sign of like that right there is like, it's okay for the rest of his appearance in the MCU. He's going to be that guy. (laughs) (laughs) And it's also really fascinating to see uh, the scene of him like rejecting Thor's offer of redemption, knowing that that will painfully uh, come to bite his ass uh, with Sylvie. Yeah. Or for that matter, the fact that he just can't seem to go get away from men in suits being like, you know what your fucking problem is? Oh, God. <laughs> yes. Loki being read to filth by bureaucrats. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, for that matter, you know, the, the, you know, you talk about peace and you kill people because it's fun. And it's just, it, that actually really added some context to the series of, you know, thinking about Mobius basically pinning him with the same kinds of questions, except at this point, you know, he's, he's tired. He's cranky. He was recently smashed into a granite floor. (laughs) He, you know, he, he escaped to the Gobi desert and he doesn't even know where the goddamn Gobi desert is. He's probably kind of shocked to be reminded that there, that, you know, that people don't only speak English or Latin. I don't know. Um, and he's just been having, he, you know, he was, he got punched in slow motion right after being slammed into that granite he's floor. He's just not in the mood, okay? Loki Lo- Odinson in the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. <laughs> you know, so he's got all of this going on. And then, and then by this point, then you have this other guy, you know... Basically just being like, you know, okay, I'm going to aggressively psychoanalyze you. And at this point, it's just like, join the fucking club. You know, how many times is this going to happen to me in one day? (laughs) Okay. uh, Favorite Rift Tracks joke. Oh, it's got to be the Gary Newman one. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm sorry. It's a classic. For those not in the know, uh, the scene where Loki has Thor trapped in the Hulk cage and it's this very tense, dramatic moment that where the camera's panning around him, where he sits next to this keyboard. And the quip is, I shall now play Cars by Gary Newman. And I, like, fell off the couch when I first saw that. <laughs> this is the best of the 60s. This is the best <laughs> of the 70s. And this is Gary Newman. And I feel like now we've had enough episodes where we can finally explain that Rift Tracks is part of the reason why our logo art is a direct shout out to the Gary Newman 1979 album The Pleasure Principle, but with Loki and the Tesseract. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's all been leading to this. <laughs> yeah, and between that and the... Uh the intense uh, synthiness of the, the show soundtrack, which, you know what? I, that was actually something else that I, I noticed watching this movie is, wow, the, the series really has like one of the only memorable scores in this franchise, huh? Yep. <laughs> it, it's, you know, I, 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 I have, it's probably one of the only, one of the only things from the MCU that I have ever just like caught myself humming bits of, you know, because this, you know, I know that there's an Avengers theme. I know that I heard the Avengers theme several times watching this movie. I can't remember how it goes. 
Da, 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 okay. Da, da, da. Okay. Now I now I remember. You know, I'm sorry. That just makes me feel like I'm about to go on like a ride at Disneyland or something. Which, you know, <laughs> the point. How do you know that but, wasn't the idea? Subliminal messaging. God. You know, <laughs> the only the only pieces in this otherwise that I mentioned. It's funny because they actually both come from Thor Media. Is I think that the. I think that the music that they use for um, for Frigga's funeral in the Dark World is actually like the most beautiful piece of music that they have ever put in this franchise. Um, it's certainly one of the only ones that I've ever seen get the treatment on playlists and everything that um, that are typically reserved for tracks from like Star Wars or Pirates of the Caribbean. It's it's like oh, the yeah. only one that seems to be treated as you know evoking a strong enough mood that you can use it to evoke it elsewhere. That's fair. Yeah. 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 And, um, that, you know, I, and I, from what I understand, that's probably one of the only ones that's actually had much of a life as a concert piece outside of like, you know, your local Philharmonic does music from the MCU kind of concerts. Um, but other than that, it's been, um, you know, I, I, I do occasionally find myself thinking of the dun 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 with like the little the little synth strings in there and <laughs> or string stings, excuse me, and uh, picking up on the fact that you know there's a lot more Ride of the Valkyries influence on that score than I thought of. Plus, that one gave us a musical number. Yep. Ah, uh, so since we're back to talking about the Loki series, uh, I feel like. Uh, I should mention that I have completed my Sylvie cosplay, and I debuted it at really the only place one can debut that, uh, the Bristol Renaissance <laughs> Fair in Wisconsin. And something really sad I found out was I went there on a Sunday, but uh, the day before I was like still very much like completely rushed trying to like finish it with all, like, waiting for the paint to dry, the contacts are meant to bind. So I couldn't be there two days in a row. But the Saturday before I came was actually uh, Loki Day, where all Loki and Sylvie cosplayers were welcome. There was uh, a Queen's College that gave, like, educational lectures and tutorials, and they would have, like, explained, like, uh, they would have told uh, Loki stories from Old Norse myths, and there would have been a, there was a costume contest, and I would love to see photos. But uh, if you, I missed that. But if you missed me there, you can catch me at uh, DragonCon this weekend. I will be wearing Sylvie again. Only this time, I will be seen uh, passing out our business cards at the Loki photo shoot uh, from Friday, September third, at I believe it is going to be one o'clock p.m. You know, I, I mostly hope that, you know, you can come back to this with some kind of, you know, tri triumphant Loki booty call story, <laughs> because I know that that would just make your, that would just be like the highlight of your 2021 would be I do too. <laughs> managing to hook up with a Loki while dressed as Sylvie. <laughs> I mean, it just, I usually have trouble flirting. I need some type of script and cosplay just helps that so much. And like now I can just say... Have you ever thought of go fucking yourself? Oh, God. <laughs> I, I would say goodnight, everybody, but I, I, I do have to mention that my, um, 
You know, I'm I'm really sorry. I know that I probably shouldn't say this on this podcast, but I've I've come to the conclusion of you know what? I don't like this movie. Ah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, I I I I refuse to. I'm not going to be silent any longer. <laughs> I I don't. I don't think I like this movie. I, Why would I you don't... say something so controversial yet so brave? I, I, I don't actually think I would describe my rewatching for this as, as being pleasant. I found myself actually wanting to retreat back to the series. Um, and, you know, and, and on top of that, thinking about how hard this movie tries to sell them all as, as friends and they never get to be friends. Well, granted, that's not just in this movie, but that's like if you look at all of the Avengers movies, was there ever any proof? Oh, no, that's that's what I mean, is that at this point it kind of ends on a note of thinking that, you know, they might be hopefully looking at each other and, you know, but really that's a dynamic that I feel like the MCU only ever properly pulled off, like, on a large scale with the Guardians. Yeah. Absolutely believe that the Guardians care about each other and see each other as family. And that just that just never happens with the Avengers. And in fact, they basically have two, they have two outings before suddenly they're all at each other's throats. Yeah, that's all it took. <laughs> yeah, and it's and and it it really it's one thing when you consider the comics giving them a span of knowing each other for like 10, 15 years before everything kind of starts falling apart. But it's like you know, I I feel like Ragnarok was a little bit truer than it than than they probably thought it was when there's the point where Thor excitedly points to the Hulk and shouts that he's a friend from work. Because that's, that's kind of, that's kind of what it feels like. It's like, it gets to the point where it's just like, do any of these people actually like each other besides like Tony and Bruce? Yeah, that's and, a good question. And, that's never. And I mean, I guess Clint and Natasha like each other. Right. But and, like and, they already and, and like, was, but they knew each other before the events of the Avengers. Yeah, no, it's like nobody comes out of this as new friends except for Tony and Bruce. Yeah, and that honestly that explains the reason why Tumblr was all over those science bro memes. Yeah, and well, because you know, because that those are the only two characters in this that actually come out of this with an interesting character dynamic from putting them in the same movie, and you know, and not to say that. Not to say that, you know, Tony kind of teasing him to see if he can get him to freak out a little bit. I mean, you know, that I, yeah, I know that that's like kind of a Tony being a jerk moment. But it's still the only thing in there where, even if Tony's not very good at it, it feels, it's the only thing in there that feels at all like friendly bonding. And for that matter, Bruce kind of just seems to be like, hey, quit it, where, where Tony's concerned. You know, that's really the only actually they're really the only characters that actually benefit from being put in this movie together and it's it's kind of depressing because you know what even knowing that whedon was also involved in this although at this point it's been kind of superseded by uh the the looming colossus of the snyder cut but you know say what you but actually you know what especially in the snyder cut now that i think about it you get the impression that the justice league fucking like each other mm. Like, like, say what you will about that movie. You get the impression that these people like each other. Yeah, that's fair. You know, even, even in, you know, even in a movie as big and clumsy as uh, Batman versus Superman, like, you know, Bruce and Diana are friends. You get the impression that they like each other. And it just, and, you know, and I say this as somebody who, you know, thinks that 
you know, the MCU by and large is significantly better at a lot of things than, than DC's repeated attempts at trying to pull out the same kind of universe. But I will say that, you know, outside of the guardians and like very small character units, they're just not good at putting huge groups of characters together. Yeah, that's definitely something that they need to work on, even though they've had plenty of time to do so. Yeah, like, I mean, I I have re- I have decently good hopes for the Eternals just because they're all being introduced in the same movie, and we know that they're a family to begin with. Um, but it's, it's just, now that I think about it, it's, you know, forget the fact that nobody fucks in the MCU. You know, it seems like there's- Nobody's friends in the MCU. <laughs> Or, you know, or nobody has large friend groups. I mean, you know, it, it, in retrospect, it really makes it really makes the the convincingness of the Guardians relationships with each other kind of a miracle. Mm-hmm. Well, because those movies pull it off so well. Yeah. And this this movie just doesn't pull it off at all. These are these, you know, and it stands out even more that, you know, they didn't. As, you know, apparently at this point they even riff on and, and what if, you know, Thor wasn't even invited to be part of this. Thor's just there. He just showed up to get his Thor's, brother. <laughs> Thor's just there. And, and you know, re-watching this from that, pers- you know, from a later perspective, it actually really shows how much he's just there, to mm-hmm. be honest. It, it's, it's like he kind of, he kind of does have like a whatever the the burly guarded version of like a tag along feel to him although one very nice thing about the uh about the um the brother of thor cut the one that combines all of loki's footage through the dark world into one movie is that it does just by virtue of cutting the scene right after he says it it does finally manage to make the well he is adopted line actually feel like it's in character <laughs> Because when it gets cut and used as just a straight up punchline and not like Thor making an excuse or something, it it literally just cuts right after he says that. And it makes it just come off like, you know, almost like a sad little throwback to them teasing each other or something, even though he didn't know that Loki was adopted. But you get me here. It's just this movie is a mess. And I I didn't enjoy rewatching it. Well, I don't know if I'm going to rewatch it again. Well, there is one bright side we get to see the dark world, but we do not have to worry about seeing Age of Ultron. <laughs> oh, thank God. You know what? This is the moment where I have to admit I have not seen Age of Ultron. Ever. You did not miss much. I, I, I mean, Maureen was even there when I directed a, a, a Marvel night at uh, my Rocky Horror cast at uh, NYC RHPS when we perform normally. We're at uh, 23rd and 8th at uh, Sinopolis, if you're interested in coming to see it. Of course, we're in the middle of a plague, so it's not going on right now. But, you know, eventually, someday, um, we, did a, we, did a, we did a Marvel theme night for Comic-Con 2016, which meant that it was still the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but everybody was dressed as Marvel characters. And in fact, uh, Dr. Frankenfurter was played by uh, Missy on our cast as Loki. And, um, while we were all getting ready of natural, you know, and I was helping the performers that night get into their costumes and I was helping Missy with her Loki armor, we were having a good old conversation about like, you know, 
So which one's your favorite and which one have you seen? And here's the thing. We literally named this show that I was directing NYCRHPS Age of Undies. <laughs> and I had to admit that I'd never seen the movie that we were riffing on. And in fact, we had actually cast Magenta and Riff Raff as Wanda and Pietro. <laughs> <laughs> and I had even done a lot of costume research for the two of them to help the performers. I have never seen those movies. I, I mean, I'd never seen that movie. The first... I, I, I have never actually seen actual non-Ralph MCU Pietro in action. <laughs> is it is it true that she has an accent in the first movie and it just goes away? Yeah, it just gets like it gets less and less noticeable until she's like full-blown Midwesterner. All right. <laughs> Movies. <laughs> so well, at least we know that there are uh, that there are greener pastures ahead, and uh, and uh, one of the the I want to say one of the last vestiges of the of the really generic MCU villain, because you know what? At least Ronan the Accuser had a personal connection <laughs> to two of the characters, <laughs> and also at least Ronan the Accuser was Lee Pace, even if he was kind of a waste of a Lee Pace. You know what? You know what I think they should have done with with Ronan. What? I mean, it, it, let me restart this. The the thing that's really a shame about Ronan is that I wish that they had kept him around so that he could eventually go through uh, comics Ronan's uh, reluctant ally phase, where he's extremely polite and apologizes to dogs, but gets really really offended if you ever imply that he's not the most powerful person in the room and loves his wife. <laughs> Because instead they just made him into a horrifying space terrorist in corpse paint who explodes. And I, I, you know, it's, um, I think the, I think the comparison that I made at one point is if you've ever seen the, uh, the fifth Pirates of the Caribbean movie, the, the Forbidden Pirates of the Caribbean <laughs> movie, which is really only worth watching for Barbosa's subplot and... Javier Bardem being in there as a character that is way too good for this movie. And just to see a little bit of closure between uh, Will and Elizabeth. Yeah, although I, I still have issues with them forcing them into that plot line to begin with. But at one point, I, I remember making a comment because there was a genuine argument about this on Tumblr at one point where people were comparing... Uh, where people were comparing Javier Bardem's character in that to uh, Ronan the Accuser. And then somebody pointed out that, like, you know, his character in this is like, well, did you know that they originally wanted, you know, this character to be, like, Norrington as a ghost? And I'm like, I'm really glad that it's not Norrington as a ghost because it's not like they didn't already, you know, it, it would have just been insult on top of injury to the fact that, you know, they crumpled him up like a wad of tissue paper in a way that almost never happens to straight white men in movies. And, and at the cost of the actual protagonist's plot lines. Um, and so I ended up making a comment about, no, you have to understand, Ronan the Accuser is both of these guys, except this one, very polite, loves his wife, comic Ronan, who apologizes to dogs. This one's Norrington. And then absolutely horrifying, missing most of the inside of his head with like black goo streaming out of his mouth, Javier Bardem in the fifth movie. Um, that that's that's MCU Ronan. I think he even has I think he even has some kind of speech about you know my father and his father and his father before him like 
it's, you know, we don't get to talk about Guardians of the Galaxy on this podcast, so I'm making up for it by talking about Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, good night, everybody. Next next week we, uh, or not next, oh, sorry. All right, so good night, everybody. Um, Next episode we get to talk about uh, the Dark World, which has, uh, it, it, it's got dark elves in it, and it and it's the, it's one of the first movies other than Guardians where the whole uh, the whole Infinity Stones thing really starts picking up. Although in, in retrospect, they they really did just kind of decide anything could be an Infinity Stone because sometimes an Infinity Stone is goo that possesses you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It like because I guess it's like water that way that can be a liquid or solid. And when it's a solid, it can be used as a paperweight. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I <laughs> <laughs>